1: Full Metal Jacket
0: is one of the national anthems of the Marine Corps. It is quoted by everyone.
2: Welcome to episode 110 of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers to see if it still plays for today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker and an instructor at the Los Angeles Film School, as well as being co-founder and CEO of Electricast Media.
3: And I'm David Tausik, and I am co-host.
4: I'm Grace Chapman. I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School and Entertainment Business.
5: I'm Guy Lewis, and I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I like movies.
1: I'm Kylie LaRue. I'm a recent graduate of USC Film School, and I'm specializing in cinema and media studies.
0: Hi, I'm Chris. I am a Los Angeles Film School alumni, recent. And I've been doing film for about eight years now.
2: I want to mention one other thing about chris chris is actually a marine veteran yes
0: this is correct five years in the marine corps combat camera which was actually joker's job by the way in the movie
3: and wow. do you do basic training at paris island Yep,
0: yeah, the way that god demands it
3: all right so now we've got <laughs> an authority excellent
2: <laughs> well in case you haven't figured it out yet this past week we watched the 1987 vietnam war film Full Metal Jacket, directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. The movie is based on the novel, The Short Timers, written by Vietnam vet Gustav Hasford, based on his own experiences during the war. And the screenplay is by Michael Hare, a war correspondent who wrote the Vietnam War classic, Dispatches. Surprisingly, it was shot entirely in an abandoned gas works in South London. And it introduced actors Matthew Modine, Vincent D'Onofrio, Adam Baldwin, Dorian Harewood, Arliss Howard, and former Marine Sergeant R. Lee Ermey, to the movie world. The movie starts on Paris Island, where wise guy Private Joker, played by Matthew Modine, is training to be a Marine with the flabby, failing recruit Private Pyle, all under the extreme discipline of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, who is only referred to as Sir after he introduces himself. Graduation day ends in tragedy and horror, but we skip ahead to Private Joker as a Marine reporter taking on an assignment that sends him deep into the war zone where he embeds with a platoon. The final act of the movie, almost entirely in real time, finds Joker in the platoon in the bombed out city of Hue, pinned down by a Viet Cong sniper hidden on the second floor of some hard to determine building. They face a series of intense moral challenges in their drive to save their injured comrades and stay alive, all while taking the battle. To the enemy. First question I have was this the first time watching the movie this past week for anybody on this podcast? Nope. Wow. All right. Nobody's first time. Guy, I want to start with you. You've also served in the military, not in the Marines, though. Is that correct? That is correct. I was on a submarine, but um bump.
5: <laughs> <laughs> when was the first time you saw Full Metal Jacket? In boot camp. When I went to boot camp, they kind of showed it as like a Small training video as you were in the middle. And then like for a while, we just watched it over and over and over and over. It's one of my favorite military movies. Hands down favorite. Not that you can have a favorite Vietnam depiction, but it's the one that I like the most.
2: Yeah, I think the Vietnam films that were considered to be the classics that came out of that time were Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, and Born on the Fourth of July. And there's a few others that are also good, but those are the ones that people pretty much consider the must-sees. Yep. And what was your experience like watching it this time?
5: It was just really familiar. It gave me like a feeling of nostalgia for military service, which comes and goes every once in a while. If you guys understand, I don't know if Kristen understands what I'm talking about, but like you kind of miss the mission a little bit, I guess.
0: Yeah, the camaraderie and stuff. You mostly miss the people, not necessarily the stuff you do. Yeah. So I feel you, man. First time I saw the movie, ironically enough, was also a boot camp. You know what they did? They put the movie, the cassette, the VHS cassette on the stool. And they told us, watch the movie. For the full length of the movie, we just stared at the cassette tape. And that was the first time watching Full Metal Jacket.
2: You mean they made you watch just a tape sitting on it? yeah, oh, just my a tape
0: <laughs> in the sleeve sitting on the stool. That was the first time watching the movie. That and, uh, is incredible. But the first time actually watching the movie, I was stationed in 29 Palms, California. And that was the first time I saw it with my roommates who were also like movie buffs. So when I said I haven't seen it, they were like, oh, nope. And immediately got to watching it. And it's intense. It's intense in all the right ways. And, and it's it's really good. It's really good.
2: So this last time watching it, did you get that same nostalgia that guy's talking about?
0: Yes. And now that I actually know about films and like they did this, they did that. That's a guy standing with a light there in the corner. Like I see all the things that they do. So I got to watch it through that lens, pun intended. And it was really interesting because I was like, oh, man, they use all these like small, simple techniques that just completely make the movie.
2: My understanding is that Marines in general love the movie. Is that true? Yes,
0: that is one of the national anthems of the Marine Corps, it is quoted by everyone, especially joint instructors. It's helped shape Marine Corps culture and like help a lot of people actually join. It's a big deal
3: in the Marine
2: Corps. Really interesting.
3: I don't think Stanley Kubrick intended it as a recruitment film.
2: No, but, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But it intended to be accurate, I think.
3: Yeah.
5: Yeah. It's not just a Marine Corps, uh, Navy boot camp, all the instructors were just subtle takes on the drill instructor's character. They're all like still
0: little bits and pieces from him. It's kind of neat to see, actually. Gunny Army's insults and stuff are improvised. Yeah, he freestyled it. So many drill instructors wish to be at that level. I say that there's no better improv person in the world than a drill instructor. You throw a drill instructor into an improv group, apart from making them cry, he will come up with the most hilarious things you could think of
5: yeah my training instructor he called me a fat body and that's directly
2: quoted from that movie yeah you know it's nuts nice all right i want to go to grace when was the first time you saw full metal jacket
4: about six years ago my boyfriend put it on and i was like i don't want to watch a stupid war movie because my brother loved war movies and he would always put them on when i was younger and i'd just leave the room after a while because i'm like this is boring i don't want to watch this Um, But as soon as my boyfriend put it on, I could tell it was different from other war movies. It was more like anti-war and just so much more artful. And I was just hooked from that moment. And this was actually my third time seeing it. The second time I watched it by myself. And then I was like, I don't ever want to watch that again because it's just so brutal. Like, it's so good, but it's so hard to watch like a car accident. You just can't look away.
2: Mm. And what did you feel this time watching it?
4: Pretty much the same. I was watching it with my mom and she was excited to watch it. She's like, Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. Can I watch it with you? I was like, Yeah, sure. And the whole time she just kept saying, It's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, it is. And I, I had to look away at some points, like during the second half. Just the brutality was a lot for me, but it's very well done.
1: My dad and I watched it, I think like 10 years ago. He wanted to show me it. So I was about like 13. I was going through my Kubrick phase and he was like, this is the one that I want to watch with you for sure so we can discuss it. And if you want to watch it, like I'm definitely going to watch that with you. And it was something else.
2: And what did you feel like when you first watched it back then?
1: I didn't totally understand it because my great uncle, he's a Vietnam vet. So I kind of was like, oh, like it must be great because Uncle Leo is so cool. I didn't know anything about it and we just never talked about it because of him. So it was the first time I really ever heard anything actually about Vietnam and it was so scary I just remember like the first half I'm just fighting behind my blanket because so I was just like this is just a horror movie for me the first half and then the second one is just like a violent brawl and it just left me scared shitless when I first watched it
2: oh my god and then mm-hmm. this time I assume you weren't as scared it's 10 years later <laughs> Yeah. but what was your feeling this time
1: it's just so heartbreaking The progression of Private Pile, that's just so scary because I can just see right where it's going. I can see the kids who I knew growing up who definitely would have fared the same way if they were in the same situation. And then when you go to the second half, everyone is so miserable and they just do the best they can with their misery and their weapons. And it is just, it makes my heart hurt. That's like very close to a true story.
2: That's a great reaction. You know, I think that there are horror elements to the movie, like uh, when Hartman makes Pyle choke himself. I just remember that being very scary because it's kind of funny up till then, and then it's kind of not funny. David, when was the first time you saw Full Metal Jacket?
3: Oh, when it came out. I mean, starting with 2001, A Space Odyssey, which came out when I was nine years old. Every time a Kubrick movie has come out, I wanted to be in the biggest theater, in the center in the best spot, because I know that he's prepared some kind of a treat.
2: I assume you've seen it a few times since then. You
3: know, I haven't seen as much as his other films, quite honestly. When it first came out, I didn't like it as much as other films. I mean, I thought it was great, but I wasn't in a hurry to see it again. And since then, I've seen the first part a few more times and I've seen the whole thing because my first reaction was this first part is totally gripping. I can't stop. I don't even want to blink. It's so good. I don't want to miss a frame. Then um, I didn't like the second part as much. So having seen it twice since then, the second part has grown on me and I see more in it.
2: I saw it in New York City. It was the week that it opened. And everything in it that we now know from having seen it over and over again, for having it referenced in culture, was all new. You know, nobody had seen this. It starts off with the guys giving their haircut. That was kind of funny. And then you have Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, the Lee Ermey performance, just Never seen anything quite that funny and scary at the same time. And, you know, you go all the way through to the end, which is a huge surprise when you find out who the sniper is. And then the very end of the movie, they're doing the Mickey Mouse Club song, which I grew up with. David, I'm sure you could probably sing yeah. a Mickey Mouse Club song, right? Yes. And then Painted Black plays and the movie ends and the lights come up in the theater. And I'm not sure what I think about this movie because it just doesn't do things the way that movies really work, right? That they're supposed to work. And this guy stands up in the back of the theater in New York and he screams out, that's the movie? That's the fucking movie? And I go, oh, I guess I really did like that movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then I saw it again a week later in New York. And people had already started to absorb the movie. And the reaction the second time a week later was so much better than the reaction that first week. Because I think there's something new about it. I think there's a shock of the new, and I think we're still catching up to the movie. I think it's starting to feel more contemporary now than it did in 1987.
4: Yeah, I kept thinking about how modern it felt because a lot of 80s movies to me just seem very dated, but it looked so contemporary to me.
2: Kylie, did you have a favorite scene or a most memorable scene?
1: When Private Pyle gives the sergeant his rifle and he starts listing off all the, I think they're called commands.
2: General orders, you mean?
1: Yes, general orders. And then that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, this change is real. He's into it. And that's a shift and the consequences of everything that happened to him. And I just love that part just for what it means for Pyle.
2: Now, do you love it because you start to think Pyle's going to make it? He's going to do OK.
1: Exactly. And I was like, OK, he's getting it. And I was kind of just like, oh, you know, what? something's not right. I shouldn't think that. I, something's wrong, actually. And it, it's like that cognitive dissonance that you kind of feel inside of you with that part.
2: Uh, and by the way, Vincent D'Onofrio's very first film role, oh. he, he auditioned on videotape and then had to do four auditions and gain 80 pounds to get the role. And the day he got the role, Kubrick said, OK, we got to make a deal. Who's your agent? He says, I don't have an agent. Kubrick gave him a name and says, this is your agent now. <laughs> and D'Onofrio says to this day, he wouldn't have a career except Kubrick, is response for him being in 50 movies. Mm-hmm.
4: He is the inspiration for my Instagram name when he's in Men in Black, when he's Egger, and he's like, sugar, water. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's where that came from. Um, but my favorite scene, probably anything with the drill sergeant, just because he's so entertaining and unbelievable.
2: He was originally the technical advisor, but he wanted the role so badly. Another guy had been hired for the role and actually been signed, and he's mm-hmm. the one who plays the guy in the helicopter who's yeah, shooting indiscriminately. Get a... Yeah, and when he was training the extras, he kept making sure that he was doing stuff so they'd turn the camera on him and then Stanley would have to see it. Smart. And then Stanley saw and it was like, great. And then they made him rehearse his lines he he did improvise and then they would write it down and then he'd have to redo it and then sometimes he improvised live but mostly it was pre-written improvisation
4: i read that they did like 30 takes of all the scenes of him yelling and he didn't repeat an insult once like every single time it was something new and the times that he did like do something rehearsed it was just kind of off so they just liked his ad lib better
2: I was watching it the other night with my son and we were both laughing and i've heard these lines a zillion times right
4: i always catch something new like this time he called somebody a worm he's like you look like a worm and i don't know why that made me laugh so hard
2: whenever he gets incensed you're just scared as hell and i love when he's yelling at cowboy and cowboy doesn't quite answer he goes sir and he goes were you going to call me an asshole <laughs> or no, no sir <laughs> The whole boot camp
5: stuff is all good things to me. There was no down or relief. You know what I'm saying? It was always tension raised. Like from the moment you sat down, you're getting your head shaved. And now you're getting hustled into the barracks and some guys yelling at you. You know what I'm saying? So it's all kind of the same scene to me, except for the end of Private Pile. And that's kind of like, you feel that tension building up. Once you see Joker on watch, And then we go to the bathroom, you know, it's something totally different. That was really striking. But then the the scenes in Vietnam, especially with the prostitute scenes, those are horrible, horrible, terrible, 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 terrible terrible, terrible scenes. But I cannot stop laughing. They sampled those scenes in hip hop, you know, uh, when I was coming up as a kid. Two live crew. Yeah. Two left crew. Yeah. And like the very last scene when Joker becomes hardcore, you know what I'm saying? That's a big scene, too.
2: So there's something just fascinating about the moral question at the end, right? Joker is the first one in to the floor where the sniper has been pitting down the squad and killing two of the squad members. He gets his moment to, as Adam Baldwin says, walk the walk, right? And Joker fumbles, Turns out he's not quite the killing machine that he was supposed to be. Maybe he spent too much time as a journalist. Rafterman shoots the sniper. And then Joker is given a moral decision to make about whether or not to shoot the sniper point blank range, who's lying on the ground dying. And the sniper is, in fact, asking to be killed. And there's that incredible long, close-up of Matthew Modine that goes on for like a minute 15 seconds I count it every time has Joker become a true marine or is it in some way kind of a cop-out because it's kind of a turkey shoot
4: well he definitely develops that thousand yard stare but I think it is sort of a cop-out because she would have ended up dying anyway so that one's a really tough one I think
2: I'm not saying that the movie cops out, but I'm saying Joker is a character. Yeah, Yeah.
4: Yeah, because he asked the shooter out of the helicopter, like, how can you kill women and children? And then he ends up killing a girl, a small girl. So it's just kind of ironic, I guess.
2: I think she's supposed to be 12 years old. Wow. So this is a super male environment, right? This is before women were allowed in the Marines or in the armed services in bigger numbers like they are today. Mm -hmm. And... The representations of women are in the drill sergeant referring to women in various derogatory ways. Mary Jane, rotten crotch, right? So this <laughs> kind of, talk about toxic masculinity. Literally, two people are dead at the end of the first forty-five minutes of this movie, and then it cuts to this wide-open shot following the uh, Vietnamese prostitute as she's walking towards what we'll see will be Joker and Rafterman. And it plays Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walking. So it's kind of giving you this fun feeling (laughs) after this horrible thing has happened. And then you see another prostitute later on. And then you see women and children being shot at by the guy from the helicopter. And then finally, finally, at the end of the movie, a woman shows up who isn't playing by the rules. And she's deadly. And she also represents the Vietnamese people and their desperation to liberate themselves from the American presence?
1: I think basically the whole movie in itself is like a giant paradox, the duality of man that's mentioned. And it's showing that women right now are used for men and used to be prostitutes. And they're so unsuspecting of women. Even though women control so much, they are like obsessing over all the prostitutes because that's, that's who they want to see. And like, they hold so much power in that way where like they can stop fighting, stop the war, and they're also seen as innocent. And then at the very end, like, Number one villain who's killed the most of them methodically is a young woman as well. And I just think it just proves the paradox of the Vietnam War as well. And just how you can undermine a woman and you can maybe think of them as nothing, but then they can also be the downfall of you, whether it's being your literal killer or being the lust part of you. And you have the Virgin Mary and you have the whore. And I think that's what Cooper is trying to like represent the woman as in a subtle and not so subtle way in this.
2: All right. So. Chris, yes. favorite scene in the movie or one that stands out to you? Um, my favorite
0: scene, as gross as it is, because it's pretty gross, um, it's the culmination uh, of Private Piles arc and the bathroom. Because three things happen there, right? You just see the end of Private Piles arc. You see Gunny Armies end there as well. But the most important thing to me was the fact that Joker got to see two levels of obsession in that scene because you do meet some people in the Marines and the military in general who kind of take it a little too serious. You know what I mean? And they live, eat, breathe, poop Marine Corps, you know? And those guys, I always tended to kind of stay away from. But the two obsessions in this scene, one is you are broken down to the point where you lose it because of that training. And then you have the other side of it, which is Gunny Army's character, who's someone who's so in it and dedicates themselves so much to it that they see nothing else but green uh, because the Marine Corps is the most important thing and nothing else above the Marine Corps and stuff like that. And you kind of see both ends of the spectrum and Joker's there in the middle of it. And what is crazy is that on both sides of the spectrum, you end up dead. Doesn't hmm. matter how much you train, doesn't matter how much you prepare, does not matter. You you die in one way or another. And that's, I think, it's a scene that Joker kind of
3: he gets exposed to that.
2: I've never heard it really put that way. It's so interesting to hear your point of view on it.
3: Yeah. So my question about that scene is Vincent D'Onofrio's acting stops being realistic. It's the first scene in the movie that just doesn't feel realistic, right? The expressions on Pyle's face, very stylized. And I remember the first time seeing I just didn't want to think about that. I glossed over it because I didn't know what to make of it. And then this time I was thinking, this is not by accident, obviously, Kubrick certainly doesn't let any accidents like that get into his film. So, you know, what does it mean? I mean, it's for an effect. You know, it's off-putting. It makes you feel not at ease because all of a sudden the film is shifting to something surrealistic. But does anyone have any idea of what that's about?
5: Right before that, though, right, you know, they're handing out assignments and duty stations to everyone, right? Yes. And it goes, right infantry. You made it, right?
3: Well, given that they're going to be shipped to Vietnam, it's kind of the booby prize, right? You made it, but, you know.
5: Right. Yeah, so that's what I was trying to say. In the beginning, he wasn't getting it together as a Marine. And he was unfairly punished in ways that are, like, really brutal. He had a lot of physical stuff that happened to him. People that are getting punished for your mistake, that's a killer. That's a, that's a thing that uh drive a guy crazy. And so he went through all of that just to go to Vietnam and people weren't just signing up to go to the Marines. People were getting drafted to, to go in to the Marines. Right. So like, we don't know why he's there or his outlook of him being a Marine, but we know that he thinks he's not good at it. He didn't think that anyone else thinks that he's good at it. And now his reward is, okay, now you're going to go have to do the thing that you had so much difficulty being.
2: Is he autistic?
0: You
5: know,
4: maybe. That's what I thought too. Maybe yeah. on the spectrum or something. So if you
0: are on the spectrum, uh, they don't let you join the Marine Corps for, and I hope I don't get in trouble here, but for liability reasons, because you need to be of sound mind and body to be able to go and do these type of things. People to the left and right, of you cannot be worrying about whether or not you're okay in that. You know you know what I mean? Yep. So like people's lives are on your hands, but you do get people that sometimes are like that. This kid, uh, <laughs> forget his name, but he could not even figure out how to uh, lace his boots. He just could not. And he asked me for help and he showed me the boot. And I was impressed with how wrong he had done it. But it was because he wasn't exposed to just do normal things, I guess. And something as simple as that, with all the stress of like being yelled and all that stuff.
1: Pyle was a social pariah in boot camp in the most controlled setting. No combat. Couldn't even figure out how to socially bond with his bunkmates. Everybody already felt him as a liability and a nuisance. And the moment that he knew he was going to go into infantry, the least controlled environment possible, I think he knew that it was either he dies now on his terms or he goes to the shit where if he can't even hack boot camp where the rules are laid out, he's not going to fare anywhere where there's no rules. Yep.
2: No, nicely said. David, I don't know if that answers your questions at all. I do know that D'Onofrio had been watching these Lon Chaney movies from the silent era and Kubrick said to him the day before that scene in the parking lot, he said, yeah, it's something like Lon Chaney. And D'Onofrio was like, great, no problem. Yeah,
3: that's that Kubrick stare that you've heard about, right? I mean, that's very similar to the look that Malcolm McDowell gives in Cockroach Orange and that Jack Nicholson gives in The Shining.
2: Is there a scene that you want to highlight
3: Well, you know, the whole 45 minutes is almost like one scene. It's so seamless. And Kubrick does this a lot, like the duel in Barry Lyndon or some of the stuff in 2001. He starts the train going and it's like a procedure, like the guys in the cockpit in Dr. Strangelove. It's like music. And the first 45 minutes is just like that. It's just sort of perfect. But my favorite scenes, I think, are the ones where Joker's thinking about loftier things than everyone else. And then he gets put in the shit and he's still trying to sort all that out. And I enjoy watching him do that because there's no sorting that out, but he tries. The peace sign, he wants to be a killer, but I don't really believe he means it. And I'm not quite sure where he is. I'm always trying to figure out where Joker is. That's where the nickname maybe comes from. He is kind of a, a Joker. You don't know quite what he is. And I don't know if he knows what he is.
1: Yeah, I think Joker is just a walking paradox. He's just that theme continuing over and over and over again. doesn't know why he's here, but he's here. He's going to try, but he's not really going to try. And he's going to resist, but he's also going to comply.
4: I was reading somewhere that the books that the film was based off of, it was supposed to be a trilogy, but the author died after the second one. But in the second book, Joker switches sides. He goes back to Vietnam and starts fighting with the Viet Cong. And I was like, That's so
2: unexpected, yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about the movie is that Private Joker is the protagonist, but he's essentially a passive observer character. And when you get to that last sequence, it's basically cowboy and then animal mother who are driving all the action until the climax when Joker has to make the biggest decision of his life and i think that that's one of the things that is really off-putting when you first see the movie especially seeing it in 1987 before it got absorbed into culture Is like okay wait a minute i'm following this guy and i don't really care that much about him there's no sentimentality like kylie you feel more sentimental towards pile than you do towards joker mm-hmm. And I don't think it's an accident. I think Kubrick with 2001 and The Shining, he always took old film grammar and made something new out of it and made us look at him in different ways. So a lot of times they would come out and people the first time they'd see him would be like, that was garbage. And then the second time they'd see it, be like, oh, my God, that was genius. I mean, that happened to me with The Shining. I thought it was bad the first time I saw it. I've now seen it like 17 times. And I think that that's what's so fascinating about the narrative structure of the movie is that Joker's the main character. but. The movie's always pulling back and always asking us to take a different, more analytical point of view about what's going on. Does this ring true, what I'm saying? Yeah.
3: Yeah. In fact, Kubrick's accused a lot of being cold. Some people find him really cold. And it's true. He doesn't really want to let you just identify in that normal movie way of you pick a favorite character and that's you. Um, I love him. Yeah. You know, (laughs) he doesn't want you to.
4: (laughs) That Forrest Gump, he's great. (laughs) I'm not a veteran, so I don't know if this is correct. What I'm gonna say, but it—it's it wrong. I know mean, <laughs> it's you're <laughs> incorrect. but it kind of seems definitely on purpose to make Joker just—you don't really care too much about him because maybe that's like how the military makes people feel when they're in there. They're just some anonymous soldier who, yep, doesn't really matter.
0: <laughs> yeah, they treat you like a number, but then they tell you your family. <laughs> But then they treat you like a number again. So you're like, what are we? You're like with a with a toxic ex. You're like, what are we? <laughs> What's going on over here? And uh, the family part comes from the people that you're serving with in the moment, right? And it's true. Like it, like I mentioned earlier. Like I, I live with two people that I serve with and I love them. You know, I love these guys. They they have no idea how much of a support system they had to meet, you know. But then the overall. We're a number, 1509777396. That's my number. Wow. You know what I mean? Like literally a number. So, yes, he is the main character and all that, but he's not 100% driving the story forward.
4: And that's sort of how war is. You know, you're not in control, you're not driving the story. So, it makes yeah, sense. You're,
0: you're not a main movie character in real life. You know what I mean? I mean, some of us, but other people. <laughs> Other people, you know, it's like in the military, you're definitely not the main character at all, dude. Well, you're <laughs> not the main character in the military unless you're doing
5: something wrong. If you are the main character, then that, yeah. that's that's not a good thing. It's a, it's a bad thing.
3: Oh, it's that's like interesting.
5: A, we called it holding the football. So if you are holding up the ship from getting underway, you have the football. If some of your equipment is broken in the engine room mm. and you can't go underway, Then you know, machinery division or electrical division has the football, and I get why Joker kind of has that feeling that he's not the main character because he's the average squared away guy, all his shit in one sock, Marine. This is the guy that's got it together.
2: So, this brings up a question that I think the movie is asking, and again, it goes to a lot what. Kylie was saying about duality in the film. The film is always asking you to hold two ideas in your head at the same time, which is what gives it a lot of juice. And one of the questions it's asking is what kind of training and character is required to survive the shit? If war is hell, which this movie is clearly showing, and combat is random, and maybe your choice will keep you from getting killed, or maybe it doesn't matter, right? So why do we spend 45 minutes before we even get to the main story? And I think the movie is basically asking you, would you rather have your squadron led by a cerebral, even-tempered guy like Cowboy, or would you rather have your squadron led by Animal Mother, who is just going to be like, damn the torpedoes, run in there shooting like hell and get you to the next kill?
4: I don't think he's fit to be a leader. I think he would definitely steer his troop or unit, whatever it's called, in the
1: wrong direction.
4: But if I wanted, like, a killer by my side, yeah. But I was not
1: drawn to him at all. No, he's, like, the guy at the bar you give, like, the wrong number you memorize and a fake name. <laughs> don't tell him what you do. Like, he's the reason why you got in groups. Like, there's some off, and he is just too eager to cause mayhem. And it's just, yeah, you know what, like, My This is my fake name. This is where I don't live. So, like, catch me later.
0: We all know that guy. You said that's a perfect description (laughs) of that person.
4: (laughs) He just seemed pure evil to me, too. Like, he just joined because he wanted to kill. And he didn't seem to have any camaraderie with his soldier mates. What do they call them?
2: Squad mates, except 8-Ball likes him.
4: Yeah, yeah. And he said to 8-Ball, like, all N-words should hang or something. And that seems like real racism, not, like... Just teasing. Well, I mean, I don't know because it it
5: the fact that he said that and they're in a situation where A Ball has a gun and could retaliate is kind of poking the bear. He's like a bear, and no one's poking him, so he's gonna poke the black guy to to just push his buttons. But you know, they're a different type of marine than we saw before, right? Before it was like the fresh boot camp. I don't know anything Marines, and then. They get to Nam, and then they meet up with Cowboy and those guys. And these guys are battle-hardened. They've seen blood and guts and everything. They're the guys you want with you. They've been through the
2: shit. I want to get into some of the research that you guys did. So, Guy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the making of it?
5: Cool. So, like, none of that was shot in Vietnam.
4: I know. I was shocked.
5: (laughs) I couldn't find out why, but they
2: flew in palm trees from Spain. Cooper could never get on an airplane. The last time he traveled to the U.S. was for the premiere of 2001, and he sailed. This guy had a pilot's license, but he was afraid of travel because he said that the airlines did not have good safety measures. He was paranoid. Oh,
5: well, uh, shit. Okay, that. Makes sense then. You know what I'm saying? Also, the set they shot on was toxic, and it took over a year to get all the shots for this movie done. And so the cast and crew were like just beat up over this period of time. It got so bad to where they were going to have a mutiny on set. And I think it's so funny that it's an army movie, but the actors are going to have a mutiny. How does that work?
2: Kylie, what was the reception when the movie came out?
1: It was, you know, well-ish received. It financially wasn't a huge success, but it wasn't a failure. I believe it was 10th in the U.S. for the month it was released. But it gets better and better reviews as it goes on. And now it lives on as one of the best war movies IMDB's number 87 on the top 100 list but contemporary viewers grow to like it more and more i think as it goes on
2: yeah i remember some of the negative reviews at the time and those things about it being too cold and whatever and i was just like dudes not right (laughs) uh grace what were the times like when it was released
4: yes so the vietnam war had been over for a decade, but it was still very fresh in the minds of Americans and just people across the globe. The Cold War was still ongoing, and that was the year Ronald Reagan visited West Berlin and famously told Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. The film was released during the second term of Reagan's presidency, which was characterized by conservative policies, economic growth, and increased focus on military buildup. And during the 80s, so many other war movies were released. I didn't realize that, but I, I looked up like, what other war movies came out in the 80s? And it was just a huge list. So it just, all of
1: them,
4: <laughs> yeah, all of them pretty much. So this film is really relevant to that discussion and America's reflections about the war and the impact that it had on our culture. And I haven't seen very many war movies, but to me, it seems totally different in the way that it's just not propaganda. like most of the ones that I've seen.
2: Yeah, during the Vietnam War, Hollywood made one movie about the Vietnam War, and it was a John Wayne movie, appropriately enough, called The Green Berets, which could have been a John Wayne Western. I mean, it was just so not in touch with what really happened. And it wasn't until after the war that you really got, you got a few things trickling out towards the end, but they were generally low budget, and kind of just looking at a little fraction of it. And it wasn't until after the war that you got the kind of deer hunter apocalypse now one-two punch and then platoon following up with the grunt's eye view from Oliver Stone. And it was just something I remember we would talk about, that Hollywood was not making movies about the Vietnam War. And, you know, they did 10 years later. To what degree do you guys feel like this is a depiction of the Vietnam War specifically? And to what degree is it something maybe bigger?
3: I don't think it's about the Vietnam War actually. I mean, I really think it's about war. And it's about the way that people have to be dehumanized in some way to do it, or they won't do it. That's what I see in the film. It could be about any war.
0: Um, I just think that it was a smarter idea to use that background of the Vietnam War, because those are the guys that really went through, like, I'm not to discredit the guys that have gone through everything else, but that's the one war that everybody still, to this day, kind of very much addresses when it came to, like, all the crazy shit that people got
2: into back then. Right. You know? Well, there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of, yeah. there, were, there were people that were shipping drugs back in coffins.
3: The reception the soldiers got was pretty awful because, I mean, they'd come home and people just say, oh, you're baby killers, you know?
2: Yeah, um, there was some know, of that. There was no uh, thank you for your service. After My Lai Massacre and things like that. Right.
1: My, my uncle Leo would talk about it occasionally. He would say he did it to stop communism. And he referenced the domino effect that I learned about in school a couple of years later. And they keep saying like, oh yeah, if we lose, then the domino effect of communism will come down. And that's what was like the reason for Vietnam. But not once in the movie, even when soldiers are doing their commentaries, do they ever talk about communism. They're kind of more like, nobody wants us here. Like no side of Vietnam, the people of Vietnam don't want us here. And they seem to be like, why are they helping them? What are we even doing? And I think it's about Vietnam because it's not about Vietnam because the war was not about Vietnam. It was about mm. the U.S. putting um, soldiers out somewhere that they felt they could control and win. And it was like a false narrative.
2: Mm. I highly recommend the Ken Burns long documentary series about Vietnam, which is so moving and heartbreaking and mind-blowing. Um, it's well worth the time. I want to talk for a second about my favorite scene, and I think it goes to why I think this actually is the great Vietnam movie of all time. I totally lock in when the last act begins. You see the head of the squadron picking up a stuffed bunny rabbit and gets blown up and killed. And now they have to do something, right? Now we're in the shit, And the squad breaks off and they get lost. And one of the things about Stanley Kubrick is every one of his movies has some sort of maze in it of some kind. He's fascinated by mazes. In Paths of Glory, it's going through the trenches in World War One. In 2001, he goes through the Stargate, goes into kind of a crazy maze. In The Shining, there's a full maze. And then Full Metal Jacket, they're lost. There's this point where 8-Ball has the map and he's like, I think we should be here. And Cowboy's like, you mean we should be here? And the whole moral question at that moment is, do you cut your losses and leave, or do you stay and try to save your Marine brothers and somehow make it through, even though you're in a place that you don't understand, don't really know where you are, and you don't even know who the enemy is. And to me, that was what made Full Metal Jacket the best Vietnam movie, because it came up with a metaphor for the war. Apocalypse Now is kind of like a trip fest. Deer Hunter is amazing in terms of the novelistic way. It talks about a whole community in Pennsylvania who go to Vietnam and are completely changed by it. The whole families are destroyed and changed and remade. But Kubrick came up with a metaphor. He famously said about Schindler's List to uh, some writer that he was talking to, he said Schindler's List wasn't really about World War II. It wasn't really about Nazism. And the writer said, why? And he says, because the Jews all lived at the end of the movie. And so what Kubrick is doing is creating this metaphor for Vietnam that basically gives us the same kind of feeling that we kind of had at the time, which is like, when the fuck are we going to get out? But we've lost so many people. What do we do? And then it'll fall the domino effect. It's like it was this huge conundrum. And I think he kind of boiled it down to that last sequence. Am I out of my mind?
3: No, there's definitely a metaphor there. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them.
2: David, I know that uh, we're kind of running short on time and there's a million things to say about Stanley Kubrick, but is there anything yeah. you want to touch on in particular?
3: It's really the last of, I'd say, 11 great films he made, you know, because the first two were really just kind of warm up. He had no budget and they didn't get seen until he became famous way later. He only made about 10 films that kind of count before Eyes Wide Shut came out, right before his death. I don't know if it's quite a finished film or not, But each one of them is an amazing event. So growing up, I thought, well, Stanley Kubrick, he's the greatest filmmaker ever. I mean, I was just bowled over. He was a huge idol for me. But looking at him now, the films are kind of peculiar. He's one of a kind. He's making films in a way that's different from the way everyone else makes films. He's also making films that say something different and that operate differently. So he's really off in a corner by himself. And each one of the films that came out got bad reviews. The only film of his that really got universal acclaim from critics was Paths of Glory, his other war film. And all the other films got pretty bad reviews, but the public liked them. They all made money, which is why he got to continue to make movies. And it's the public that carried him. Critics didn't like him. And then 10 years later, they all love him. These are films that really need digesting and uh, worth revisiting again and again. That's all I'll say about them.
2: The ending, where after Joker's had this climactic moment, he does a little narration, seems like he's gotten through to the other side, and the soldiers all march off, again, kind of camera pulling back, and they're singing the Mickey Mouse theme, right? Hilarious, chilling, or WTF?
1: I think it's scary.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of terrifying, but it's also kind of funny because of the juxtaposition of it all.
5: I think that scene is just so big. It says so many things. One, the war is still going. This little skirmish that we just saw is one of the small pieces of this war. There's still more. It's still going on. And then two, it speaks to the age of the average soldier. Yeah. They're not grown ups. These are kids, you know, 19, 17, 18, you know, 22. Those, those are kids. So when they do the Mickey Mouse, it's like, hey, what have you all seen? Well, Mickey Mouse. But then on top of that, it's like saying to the Vietnamese people, Mickey Mouse is coming to take over, which is like kind of like <laughs> a, a thing, you know, America. The- like capitalism, like America.
4: America comes capitalism. Yeah. here comes capitalism, here comes
5: America. Oh. It's, it's, we're coming to get you. Oh, it's so big. So good.
4: So powerful. And it really speaks to the loss of innocence, just the contrast of singing about Mickey Mouse after you just murder somebody. And the whole film is really about loss of innocence. So I thought it was extremely powerful for them to be singing that at the very end. Yes, exactly. All
2: right. I think it's time for us to wrap up over here and go with our recommendations. So who would you recommend this movie to, if anybody? And then on a scale of one to four stars, how many stars do you give it? Four stars, that's an A plus and has to have touched you in some personal way. You'd be willing to fight for it to be on your top 10, 20, 30 list of favorite movies of all time. Three and a half star is considered to be an A. Those are all great movies. Three stars is usually like a flawed classic. some movie that maybe isn't perfect, but is awesome, great, exciting. Then you get to the Bs with your two-and-a-halves and and twos. Uh, So I'm going to start with Grace. Who would you recommend this to, if anybody, and how would you rate it?
4: I would recommend it to anybody, even if they're not a fan of war films, because I wasn't at all, and it really surprised me and blew me away. So anyone who loves film and has any taste, because it's just very aesthetically pleasing, and the composition, the shots, everything, it's just Um, masterpiece honestly but I'm going to give it a 3.5 because I don't know if I can stomach watching it again I won't be putting it on on purpose for a long time
2: I want to bring up something you just said about the perfection of the images Mm -hmm. Kubrick started off as a still photographer is like 17 years old he was getting pictures in look magazine yeah he didn't even he didn't go to college he was an autodidact Mm -hmm. just read all the time and he got into look and then he did documentary film and then he so I think you could stop any frame of this movie and it looks like a great photo.
4: Yeah, I agree. Especially the first half, because it's like David was saying, you don't want to blink because you don't want to miss a frame of it.
3: And that part's more controlled. When they get out to Vietnam, he wanted a more documentary feel. And so like it's that. not as pretty yeah, as the films he mm-hmm. would made before, like Barry Lyndon 2001. But it's full of art. And uh, so many cinematographers have said that Stanley Kubrick is the one director that any cinematographer just has to do what he says and he knows better. He was a complete whiz. He owned all those lenses. He had special lenses made just for certain shots he wanted to do. He was an unbelievable craftsman as
2: well. Some of those shots, like the violent shots where eight ball and then the dock get shot, You see violence all the time, but there's something about them where they're just at another level in in terms of artistry and impact. Mm
3: -hmm. The camera's always in the right place, and everything is so carefully planned in advance.
1: It's so detailed. It's really (laughs) impressive. I rate it as a four. This is definitely in my top 20 films of all time. I love it. And I would recommend it to anyone who just wants to be challenged. Someone who wants to try and figure out how they see it as they grow up. I think it just changes all the time, and it's challenging challenging emotionally and cognitively.
5: This movie was great. Three and a half stars easily. I could could give it more than that, but I want to make the math easy. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. Any person that hasn't served in the military, but wants to get an insight, this is a good movie for that. To watch that movie and then go talk to your military service member and, you know, start asking questions and start a dialogue or be like, hey, have you seen Full Metal Jacket? And their answer is going to be yes. And then you talk about some things and it's a a good segue into finding out a little bit more about their lives.
0: Definitely rated a four. I think I would be excommunicated from the Marine Corps if I didn't rate (laughs) this movie a four. (laughs) I like movies that do make me think. I I love movies that kind of offer like a different perspective towards things, right? For example, and the one that just pops up right now is um, Everything Everywhere All at Once at the core of that movie. It's a story between a mom and a daughter. You know, and the shit that they go through. But it's an interesting way to go about it. Same with this movie. This movie offers this kind of different perspective into how shitty fucking war can be without all the propaganda behind of go join the Marine Corps or join the military, you know, without any of the glitz and the glamour. Right. And I recommend this movie to anyone in the VA, anyone in the Veterans Affairs office that wants to know how we are treated and why we need help, watch this movie. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe some services can get updated a little bit quicker. But kidding aside, I uh, I do recommend this movie to anyone, anyone really, because um, going off what Kylie said, like it does really challenge you. It really does. There's people that I know that can't watch this movie. Like they have told me, it's like, I cannot, I can't do it, you know, and hmm. it's movies like that that really kind of do it for me, kind of why I'm here,
2: you know, inspiring. David, what about you?
3: Well, it's Stanley Kubrick, and he's my biggest idol among film directors. The thing is, it's probably my fifth favorite Kubrick film. And if you're actually talking about the top 30, can five of them be from one director? I can't do that. So I guess by the rules, I have to give it three and a half. But it's an unbelievable movie. But saying it's the fifth best Kubrick film is like saying it's the fifth best diamond in the British royal family's collection. You know, it's it's awesome. And I'd recommend it, obviously, to any Kubrick fans, I mean, anyone who likes movies that make you think or that punch you in the gut viscerally, because it does both, you know, anyone who's not too squeamish, definitely check it out.
2: So as far as recommendations go, I'm kind of going to go with all what you guys have said. I just think it's a fantastic film. When I think about Stanley Kubrick movies, and like David, he's my favorite filmmaker. Alfred Hitchcock's right behind him. And I think they're cut from kind of the same cloth. They both—you can see one frame of their movies and go like, "Oh wait, I think I know who directed that." With Kubrick, my three favorite Kubrick movies—the ones that I think have stood the test of time, the best, dated the least, and are the most constantly rewarding to return to—number one is 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is in my top five. Second or third would be The Shining, which, as I mentioned, I didn't like when it first came out, and then. I became actually scared to watch The Shining Alone.
0: <laughs>
2: and the scariest thing to me was the writer's block.
5: <laughs> oh, that's oh that's a that's a great scene. Oh.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, as someone oh, who's tried God. to write and has written, but at times it's been blocked. I mean, there was nothing more terrifying to me than than this guy's just like a fraud. But I think Full Metal Jacket might at this point be my second favorite Kubrick film. And it's just so rewatchable. And the fact that, you know. Those Arlie Ermey lines, I've heard a million times, but his performance is, I mean, I'm watching it going like, wait, he didn't win Best Supporting Actor? Oh, wait a minute, Vincent D'Onofrio didn't win Best Supporting Actor? Wait a minute, two of them weren't nominated? It makes me like, what?
4: Robbed.
3: Kubrick didn't win a single Academy Award for Best Director. 2001 got Best Special Effects. Yeah. And then I think uh, Barry Lyndon got a few costuming and you know, yeah. cinematography awards.
2: He didn't win Best Picture or Best Director. Or uh, didn't even nominate Kubrick. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying, to me, this is a four-star movie. I can find a place <laughs> for it somewhere up in my top 30, I'm sure. And maybe even a little bit ahead of The Shining, which I think is slightly flawed in comparison. But it's just so essential. And I, I also think it's his last great movie. I kind of think of it like his final film. I know he did Eyes Wide Shut and I need to revisit it. but. You know, he died before that was done. And Kubrick was known for making changes to movies, sometimes even after release. Uh, He cut 20 minutes out of 2001 after the first week it was out. Cut six minutes out of A Clockwork Orange after it was released. Uh, He cut the ending of The Shining just before it was released. So this one is complete. This one's like a full utterance. This guy knew what he was doing. And I think we're lucky that we have him. I was so lucky to see three of his movies when they opened, and uh, I'm just jealous as hell that all these great actors got to spend time with him, and they're basically kind of my age. They Some all of got them this. are
3: jealous of you that you didn't have to spend time with
2: him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you hear Matthew Modine, Vincent D'Onofrio, well, they talk about it. They have such affection for Stanley. I'll tell you one last story. Arliss Howard who plays cowboy, raps, and Stanley, as he's saying goodbye to him, says, "You're going to miss me." And Arliss Howard says, well, of course, I'm going to miss you, Stanley. I like you. You know, we've grown really close. He says, no, no, no. He says, when you're on another movie and the director after two takes says, we got it, you're going to miss me. And Arliss Howard goes and works on a movie, the first movie. And after two takes, the director goes, we got it. And Arliss Howard goes, God, I miss Stanley. (laughs) All right, guys, if you want to stream Full Metal Jacket for yourself, it is currently available on Hulu, it appears. Is that correct? Yep. Also, various places where you can rent it and it is well worth it. Um, Most Kubrick movies work best in the movie theater, but I think this one actually works really well on TV compared to some of the others. And I think part of that's because of the verbal nature of the first 45 minutes of the movie. If you like our show, please tell your friends to rate and review it so other people can find us as well. Generation Film is an ElectroCast production. I'd like to thank our panelists, Grace Chapman, Guy Lewis, Kylie LaRue, and our special guest, Maureen, Christian moreno Aponte. Ah, that's me. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming and giving us so much background and Guy also for your service as well and what you're able to bring to the story. I'd also like to thank my co-host, David Tauzik who produces this and is heavily involved with the editing along with our editor, Marcus Campito. Our executive producers are myself, Mark Netter and my partner at Electrocast Media, Peter Rafelson. Please join us on our next episode where we'll see how another classic film plays to a young generation. And this is going to be a very special double film episode, a short and a feature from two ends of the career of Louis Bunuel. Un chien also known as Andalusian Dog, the short he made with Salvador Dali that caused riots when it opened, and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from the late 1960s, a surrealistic epic about three couples trying to have dinner together. We'll see you all on the next episode of Generation Film.
0: Electric ass. So no more movie
1: quotes. Roger. Roger. Electric acid.